Hey Lily, what? do you want to open a birthday present early? There's a legendary video on YouTube called Lily's Disneyland Surprise. If you're one of the 19 million people who have seen it, then you already know where this story is going. Ahead of her sixth birthday, Lily, a little girl with a blonde mop of hair, receives a new book bag filled with snacks, a new Disney t-shirt, and movies. She holds up one of the movies and says to her mother, Lily seems profusely thankful and amazed. And at this point, you think, that's a sweet surprise. And she's a grateful kid. But then Lily's mom asks her where she would like to take her new book bag with all this stuff. If you could go anywhere, she asks, where would you go? Lily considers this and then says with certainty, Disneyland. And her mom tells her that that's where they're headed today. Lily, as if playing along, says, okay, and readies herself to pretend to go to Disneyland. Okay, but her mom assures her that she's being serious, at which point Lily begins to truly process the good news Are you joking? and no, then bursts joking. into tears. Yes, not only tears, but an all-out, heartfelt wailing. She absolutely loses it. <laughs> she loses her sense of time, asking if today is her birthday, when she knows it's still a week away. She simply doesn't know what to do. She's so happy and overwhelmed that all she can do is weep. Rewatching this video recently, I started thinking of other famously bad reactions to surprises. There's Aunt Sue from Saturday Night Live, aka the surprise lady, who in her excitement about surprises always seems to break a window. I just love surprises. I'm so freaking effing excited. But there's also other stories, older stories. There's the one in the Bible where Peter sees the resurrected Jesus standing on the beach. John writes that Peter and his friends had been out on the Sea of Tiberias all night, trying to catch fish with no luck. But at dawn, their net fills with so many fish that they struggle to haul it in. Simultaneously, they discover their formerly dead teacher standing over on the shore. So Peter does the sensible thing. He puts on his clothes, for he was naked, and jumps into the water. Peter abandons the catch of a lifetime and leaves his friends to do all the work. He swims, or as I imagine it, body surfs back to the beach where Jesus is waiting by a charcoal fire cooking breakfast. My name is CJ Green. I'm the editor of The Mockingbird magazine. If you're a longtime listener to The Mockingcast, you've likely heard from my predecessor, Ethan Richardson, who founded The Mockingbird magazine and edited the first 16 issues. With this 17th issue, Ethan handed the torch to me, but don't worry, he's still around, and even helped plan and edit this issue, which is all about surprises. We had noticed that surprises are often forms of grace in disguise, like with Lily or Peter. We might not react appropriately, but true gifts aren't conditional on how we receive them. In an interview with the poet Kava Akbar, the writer Leslie Jameson beautifully described this relationship between grace and surprise. She writes that the vending machine of grace is vast and never gives you exactly what you asked for. Surprise, Jameson says, is an important part of grace. Grace isn't the thing you planned, it's what you get instead. It's not a product of narrative or moral cause and effect. It catches you off guard. Of course, to be caught off guard doesn't always feel great. This might seem obvious given 2020. 
I don't know about you, but I did not see this pandemic coming. Most of us, if asked, would probably say we hate surprises, partially because we hate being out of control. But also, experience has shown that not all surprises are a trip to Disneyland. Sometimes, surprises are tragedies. We talk about that in this issue as well, and what it looks like to believe in the good news when we feel surrounded by bad news. We even considered calling this the catastrophe issue, but surprise felt more honest because it leaves room for the possibility of grace. On this special edition episode of The Mocking Cast, we'll give you a sample of our latest magazine. We'll hear from Helena Deabala, Liz Titchener, and Sam Bush. We'll be covering the topics of happenstance, tragedy, and the sound of surprise. That is, jazz. First up, Helena Deabala. If that name sounds familiar, it might be because she's been mentioned on the Mockingcast before. For reference, that's episode 198. Helena Deabala is the author of Craigslist Confessional, a compendium of anonymous stories collected from Bala's time doing professional listening, which is something she picked up years ago when she posted an ad on Craigslist inviting strangers to tell her about themselves. She began listening to people, sometimes for hours, for free. Some confessants allowed her to transcribe their stories and publish them anonymously. Bala's work is a testament to the power of listening, but also it showcases the private darknesses ordinary people carry with them. And as you'll hear from this reading, it wasn't always easy for her to take in. I had contacted Bala thinking she might be a good writer on the topic of surprise. I mean, what could be more surprising than people's secrets? But what she wrote instead was an essay about an even bigger surprise. You'll see what I mean, I think, in a few minutes, as Bala reads her essay from the magazine, which is entitled Kismet. Prior to this, I was unfamiliar with that term, so in case you also hadn't heard it before, I'll just quickly note that kismet means fate or providence. Without further ado. Kismet by Helena de Abala. I was awakened by the muffled thuds that his hospital clogs made when he flicked them off against the wall outside our apartment. He took painstaking care not to wake me as he inserted the key into our front door lock slowly and then eased the door shut once inside. I heard the sandpapery shuffling of his scrubs when he took them off, and next came the sound of plastic crinkling as he wrestled them into the garbage bag, the crimped, blue-gray, thank-you kind that we'd likely collected from the corner bodega, noosed around the door handle. Right then, I knew it had been a bad night. It was a little after 7.30 a.m. and Alex was just getting home from a night shift at the emergency room. He jumped into the shower and I rolled out of bed quietly, hovering outside the bathroom door for a minute or two. I heard nothing, no loofah scrubbing, no water splashing, and no raspberries from almost empty shampoo bottles. Just the silence of him standing still in the shower as the water slid from his skin, carrying away dirt, exhaustion, sadness. We had moved to New York City the previous year when Alex matched into residency. Although we'd only been dating for a couple of years, we decided that we didn't want to put ourselves through the pain of long distance, so I committed to moving wherever it was that he'd end up. We gathered our things slowly, the small, tangible memories we'd each acquired over a decade of happy living, packed them up in a tiny U-Haul, and drove across five states from D.C. and into Manhattan. We left behind friends and the feeling of home and we shook our heads dismissively when all of his future colleagues told us, buckle up, 
these will be the hardest four years of your life. Our first morning in New York, we woke up together on the second-hand bed that we'd purchased on Craigslist. I asked Alex whether, when he was a kid, he'd ever woken up in a whole new city in the middle of a trip, having forgotten that he'd left home at all. I told him about the exciting times when my mom would pack up a bag and drive us to my aunt's for the weekend. She lived by the beach, and the whole family would flood her small apartment, sleeping wherever we could. I slept on a pile of blankets stacked up high on the floor, and when I'd wake up the next morning, it was a kind surprise that I wasn't in my own bed at home. For a few solitary seconds, I felt suspended in the pure potential of the moment, the adventures to come, the sheer possibility of life. It was such a nice feeling, kind of like getting an unexpected present, I said. Has that ever happened to you? He nodded his head yes, and it said, it happened to me just now. And I said, me too. As the months passed, I started getting used to the heavy eyelid looks he gave me after 14-hour shifts. Alex bought me an over-the-bed light so that while he slept, I could stay up to work until 3 or 4 in the morning. We stole moments together whenever we could. The security guards who worked the front doors of the emergency department got to know me quite well, and most of them were on a first-name basis with our dog, Stanley. I suspect we'd pique their curiosity by our slightly odd tradition, our nightly walk from our apartment building across the street and into the visitor's entrance of the ER, a warm dinner in tow. I'd sit in the bare hospital waiting room and make small talk with the guards until Alex could get away for a few minutes. I'd watch whatever was on the unattended television, usually some iteration of a Judge Judy-esque show, and try to get Stanley to sit still on my lap. Most nights I'd get a text that meant dinner would go cold. Sorry, gonna be late. We got a notification. Very rarely, the emergency room would quiet, and Alex and I would manage to sit together for a few beats as he devoured his food. Time passed as quickly, a swift wind that brushed our cheeks only occasionally as a reminder that we were moving, perhaps apart, hopefully together again. So I looked at him a lot while he slept, just to refamiliarize my eyes and my heart, and I told myself that he was still Alex and I was still me. We were still us. We talked about getting married, about having kids, but it never seemed like the right time. We didn't have the money to plan and pay for a wedding. For different reasons, we couldn't count on our parents for support. Mine wished to give, but couldn't. His didn't, and it broke our hearts. And we couldn't have kids when one of us, and often both of us, was working 80-plus hour weeks and surviving on a couple hundred dollars a month allotted for meals. So the future, and the silver lining it seemed to promise, was always a topic that we relegated to later discussion, when we would have more time, more money, when we'd be less tired. But we were always tired. I went back to bed that morning and drifted in and out of shallow sleep until Alex's thin silhouette appeared in the doorframe, backlit by the faint hallway light. Since he'd started his training, he'd lost more than 15 pounds. Seeing him like this, frail and tired, made a mysterious place in my gut ache. I tossed the covers open, scooted to the side, and patted the warm spot next to me. He apologized for waking me and kissed my cheek. Then he set the alarm in time for his next shift. How was your night? I asked. I had to throw away my scrubs, he said. Not salvageable. He rubbed his eyes and settled in next to me. We both stared at the ceiling for a few seconds, and I waited as he gathered the courage to breathe into our space the things that he'd seen. Someone coded, he said quietly. We worked on her for an hour, but she didn't make it. I thought of asking him, did she suffer? Did she know that she wasn't alone? Did you hold her hand? Was she very young? 
Did she have children? A merciful answer could dull the sharp edge of death. Maybe she'd been suffering for a very long time. Maybe it was her time to go. Maybe she was surrounded by loving family. Maybe it was peaceful. You know, we all look for these details to distance ourselves from someone's tragedy. We look for something to cling to that allows us to sleep, thinking that we would be spared this particular fate. I felt like a coward, so I didn't ask after all. I forced myself to sit with it. And then I looked at him, half expecting him to burst into tears or rage or maybe to even shut down and go to sleep. But he did nothing. I wondered aloud if it would ever get easier, and he shook his head. And then, as if waking from a nightmare, he turned to me and asked about my night. I had a meeting after you left yesterday, I said quietly. A man told me about his childhood. His dad used to get drunk and beat up on him and his mom. That's tough, he rubbed my shoulder lightly. Did you cry? Only afterwards. I kept it together during. Do you need to cry now? He gently turned my back to him and pulled me into Little Spoon. Maybe. Do you? I asked. Maybe. We stayed quiet for a little while, and when I turned to tell him that I loved him, he was already asleep. I got out of bed and began my day. He stirred slightly, and I closed the bedroom door behind me. I stood in front of the plastic garbage bag for a while, watching the small crimson spots that peeked through the thin veil, seemingly suspended in midair against our front door. Little pieces of the stranger trapped inside our kitchen started to seem synecdochic. The thought that she was animated just a few short hours ago, that her life's blood was safely inside her and not on Alex's scrubs, haunted me. So I pinched my fingers together and carefully grabbed the edges of the bag, easing it away from the door handle. Then I walked it down the hall to the trash compactor, a forsaken resting place, and hesitated only momentarily before closing the chute door as the bag tumbled down. I went back to the apartment feeling uneasy. Had I been callous to throw her away like that? When I settled into work, the air felt heavy still, the residual sadness covering our furniture like a sparkling dust, a reminder of our impermanence. I burrowed into the emails that accumulated overnight. It seemed that the prototypes of all of life's sadness were gathered there, addiction, depression, illness, and so were the people who came to me because they had no one else. I feel alone. I'm so unhappy. I can't trust anyone else. And finally, how did I get here? They asked. A familiar refrain. I answered them all, offering my time and attention because those are the only things that I have and the only things that seem to help. I had no big plan when a couple of years before, while working my day job as a lawyer, I posted my first ad on Craigslist. Tell me about yourself, I begged. Tell me all the things you won't, can't tell anyone else. Show me what you diligently hide every day. Put your mask down for a couple of hours. Come, sit, let me see you, and in looking closely, maybe glimpse a piece of my own soul. And I wasn't prepared when they did, hundreds of people, of kindred souls looking for release, for companionship, connection, forgiveness, mercy, a break. I wasn't prepared to quit my job, to dive into the lives of others, into their sorrows. I did it for myself as much as for them. My work taught me that sadness will find us all, and all we can do is brace ourselves and find solace, however brief, in the things and the people around us. All we can do is be grateful for the happy coincidences that keep us here, present, with the ones we love, toiling perhaps in the difficulty, the unfairness of life, but at least living.
I heard our bedroom door creak open, and Alex rounded the corner into our living room. He looked groggy as he stood there, considering the scene for a few moments, and then said, Do you want to go and get married? I put on a white dress and he a regular suit, both recycled from past weddings and formal obligations. We walked around the apartment for a little while, each giving the other lingering looks, simply reveling in the turn our week had taken. I fished out my phone and took a few photos, just for us to capture the moment. When we boarded the train to City Hall, we fetched knowing looks from weary passengers. I focused my eyes on his smile. I couldn't get enough of it. Wide, toothy, happy. So different from his expression those past few months. At City Hall, we waited in line behind a few other couples and found a lovely stranger to be our witness. He was there because his marriage certificate had been destroyed during Hurricane Sandy. I'm sentimental, he said. I know it's just a bit of paper, but it means so much to my wife and me. I made a mental note to remember his name, to remember him, so that this moment would seem like more than just a dream when we told our children. But the truth is I've forgotten his name, his face, everything about him except for one, that his wife was Italian. Over the years, he must have picked up the language, and having briefly lived in Italy as a child, I had retained functional use, so we exchanged a few sentences, and I allowed myself to believe that maybe it was Kismet, after all, that he should have been the one standing next to us that day. Afterwards, Alex and I walked to the Brooklyn Bridge and took a few photos. We strolled hand in hand, buoyed by our little bit of luck, thinking that we might have done a million little things only slightly differently, and that if we had, we wouldn't have been here. We smiled and kissed each other and cried. The other day, I was on my back on the living room floor, feeling exhausted and beaten. I desperately needed a break. Because I'd been thinking about our wedding a lot, I let my mind wander there again, a strange oasis of a memory, a pearl surrounded by gray matter. Everything about that day seemed impossibly bright. Suddenly, my toddler, Ronan, stubbed a toe and started to cry. Alex rushed into the living room, panicked. Jolted into the present, I pulled Ronan down on the floor with me and arranged his body on top of mine so that we were face to face. One of his tears fell into my eye. Your tears are my tears now, I said, and it felt heavy. True in a way I'd begun to comprehend only since he'd been born. As has happened many times in the last two years, my heart filled with the wonder, the improbability of it, life, and for those brief moments, that potential was all that was. That was Helena de Abala reading Kismet from issue 17 of The Mockingbird. Next up is an excerpt from my interview with Liz Titchener, author of The Night Lake. I had found The Night Lake by chance, noted the subtitle, which is A Young Priest Maps the Topography of Grief, and I had a feeling this would be a powerful book, and it is. Titchener is an Episcopal priest living in Northern California. The book is her memoir following the unexpected death of her infant son, Fritz, which took place only months after her mother died to suicide. It's an honest, deeply sad story, but as Liz tells it, it's also a story of possibility and, perhaps surprisingly, hope. At Mockingbird, you know, we're constantly thinking about language. Part of our organization is the, the mission statement is to um, 
essentially reflect the Christian message and the language of everyday life and reality. Mm -hmm. And one of the first things that really impressed me about your book, I mean, almost immediately was the language and the way that it's Mm -hmm. written. Um, You're so straightforward with your spirituality and your religious outlook. Um, but it's, you, you write about it in a way that I think would feel digestible from any point of the like Mm -hmm. sacred secular continuum. Mm -hmm. Uh, and I wondered if that was a conscious choice and like who your audience is. Um, yeah. So yeah. Yeah. I appreciate that. Uh, I'm, I'm grateful to hear that that came through that, uh, that absolutely was something that I sought to do. So I'm, I'm writing in a religious context all the time at this point I preach almost every Sunday. And, you know, obviously those sermons are, uh, tend to be a lot more explicitly religious. Uh, and not that this isn't, but I, um, I didn't want to write a churchy book for churchy people. <laughs> I, I hope that, uh, that this, this story, this writing will be useful or a source of hope or possibility for people who already have found a home there. Um, and, I, I don't think that we uh, as a church have a monopoly on truth or on grace or on healing. Um, I think we have a particular way of practicing it that I have found valuable. Um, but I, I I wanted to open it up more broadly in part because I haven't encountered a lot of folks sharing their stories in this way. And it's something that I longed for. I found you know, I found some writing that, uh, you know, in particular around suicide or in uh, the death of a child that um, was was really far in one direction of religiosity, uh, very much of the everything happens for a reason and God needed another angel. And I, I just, I couldn't buy it. Um, not because I don't believe that God is intimately present and involved in uh, in the world, but because I just couldn't believe that this all loving God would desire that, you know, even if (laughs) there's so much that is beyond my comprehension, that didn't, that didn't square for me. And, um, I wanted to, to offer what I was experiencing as perhaps another way in for folks who, um, who are wrestling any kind of struggle or loss or grief or whatever, and getting the message from the church, you know, capital T, capital C, that this suffering was designed to, you know, fill in the blank, make them stronger or some greater purpose, which I think so often actually has the impact of separating people from the grace and the healing and the love that I find to be available uh, and freely given in God. But when you're told that this terrible, this most awful thing that you are experiencing, you're at rock bottom, and somebody tells you, uh, this, is, this is what God has made for you. I don't want to have anything to do with that, God. Yeah, right. <laughs> no, thank you. With those types of platitudes, my, like, my sense of it is that a lot of that stuff, I wonder if it just comes from like fear of like, or, or just like everybody being at a loss of like how to deal or like what to say. And so it's just easier to like package it up. Um, Mm -hmm. I think so. Yeah. I think they're designed to, um, and, and without intention, you know, none of this is a a conscious 
choice I think that people make, but but I think we turn to those platitudes when we feel desperately uncomfortable, when we're afraid of getting too close to that pain. You know, I, I've often had the sense that it can seem contagious to people. Like if they get too close to that pain, it might somehow come on to them as well. Oh, and so we, you know, we throw out these these ways to tie it up really quickly in a bow so that we don't have to actually enter in and engage it. Yeah. So I have to ask just like in, mm-hmm. in concisely, like, do you have any tips or like recommendations for what to say to somebody who's grieving? I mean, have you kind of come across, mm-hmm. I mean, maybe there is nothing, but uh, I don't I know. think there actually are. I think there are so many good things to say. One um, I remember you wrote was like, I'm trying to understand. Yeah. Versus, that, or I'm trying uh, to imagine. That to me has been such a gift. Uh, the time I, I can remember vividly the times that friends, um, I, I, I heard it just recently from my sister-in-law, this, I, I, you know, it's not the same. I haven't lived it. And I'm trying to put myself there. I'm trying to imagine what that might be. And my heart is breaking in that. Uh, it's it's not the same as saying I know just what you are going through because that can be <laughs> my 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 favorite awful example of that was uh, when somebody asked about my kids and I explained the shape of our family uh, and and our our son we'd lost and he said to me um, oh, I just I know just what what uh, what that feels like my my cat got really sick and almost died. <laughs> <laughs> I I almost I was like so so your cat and and I love animals uh, you know I'm totally in love with this puppy that we just got but but you're saying that your cat almost died that is actually not the same as my son who did <laughs> die. so you know no we we should not say even if it's a really similar loss but I think that the active empathy of choosing to go there and join someone when you don't have to is an incredible gift. Um, I think some of the other pieces uh, or, or offerings that I've received from people that have been uh, just such grace, honestly, are things like saying his name, mm. remember saying, we are remembering Fritz, yeah. his life mattered. Um, you know, people will reach out and just, just say, I'm thinking about him. Uh, and, and joining me in that work of remembering is a gift. Yeah, I, I think to the extent yeah. that we can send one another love and not make meaning on someone else's behalf. You know, I had, early, early on, I had people telling me, oh, this is going to this is going to make you a much better priest. <laughs> oh, my God. Maybe, maybe it will. And the truth, I mean, the truth is that I think it has. It has transformed how I'm able to walk with people in really desperate situations but actually, they didn't know that then, and I didn't know that then. That was something to to let unfold over time. Um, I think letting people come to to the the meaning and and how a, a loss or grief has transformed them themselves is a a good idea. Yeah. So the subtitle of your book is a, a young priest maps the topography of grief. That's such a great subtitle. I love that idea of mapping the topography of, of grief and reminds me of like exploring, making your way through the unknown, um, mm-hmm. kind of sussing out like what's real 
And there's part of your, the excerpt that you read earlier about the lake was, I think there's a line where you say, it's hard to know what's known. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that that really equates beautifully with like death um, because mm -hmm. it's in a lot of ways, death is like the, one of the most real things we know about our existence, but we, it's also like so hard to wrap your head around it. And, and so I guess like just in terms of like you talking about your role as a priest, like I feel like diagnosing reality in some ways is um, maybe is part of that. And I feel like you do that really well in this book. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think it would be easy for like a Christian author to kind of spin off and like abstract spiritualities, but you seem to consistently like bring, bring it back down to like reality. Like this is what mm -hmm. we know. This is what's mm -hmm. happening. Was that a product of just your frustration with like responses <laughs> from people or was that a conscious thing? Um, I don't know that it was a resp I don't know that it was in response to, to that, uh, frustration so much as I'm so the, the Christian faith plays out in many many different forms as you well know but the part of that world that I live in um, part of our I'd say what's among the most important aspects of our practice is this really incarnate expression of our faith that it happens uh, not in our minds, not some, I mean, yes, intellectual, you know, pursuit is important, questioning matters and, and examining in that way. But the, the, the ways we actually practice this faith are rooted in our bodies, in our bodies coming together, in, you know, putting our hands out and having a hunk of bread put there that we will actually have to chew and swallow or uh, laying hands in, in prayer and in blessing, uh, receiving ashes physically on our forehead. There, there are all these ways that we try to bring that faith back into physical embodied practice. And so that was some of what I was trying to do in the book, uh, not to refute much more um, sort of dualistic or, or simply spiritualized expressions of, of what we know or what we imagine, but because I think our bodies and this earth, th this is where we can first and foremost begin to explore what is, what might be. Um, this, this is where we are. We can, we can dream and imagine and look to mystics for what may come, but uh, how we actually live it out matters. Our bodies matter. And I think we have to start there if we're going to then enter more fully into a spiritual realm that we that we we are grounded in our bodies and then can be surprised by this level of soul or of wonder or of mystery. And and I think those interact. I think they they dovetail and weave in and out of each other. And that was some of the most unexpected and incredible um, the parts of of this exploration, I guess, or, or yeah. um, what was how those thin places came to me, I guess. Mm -hmm. But but it starts, I think, with the body. You were talking about Ash Wednesday and the ashes. And like, mm -hmm. I love that section in your book, too. And you have a quote where you say, I looked into people's eyes and I told them whence they came and where they were headed. Reminding people that they're going to die is an odd way to tell them that you love them. Yeah. And that's such a fascinating idea. I wondered if you could talk a little more about that. And also, like, 
um, I meant to say earlier, like this issue of the magazine that we're printing is all about the unexpected and mm. surprise. And so you had also mentioned that too, like in your last response, just like kind of staying in reality and then seeing where that kind of takes you, mm -hmm. I guess. And yeah. I don't know. Do you have yeah, I think it's a, it's a way, it's a stance of being rooted in where we are and at the same time opening ourselves to what we don't know and <laughs> not uh, not being overly confident that we understand everything or we know how it's going to play out. Um, that that line on Ash Wednesday, that it's a, a strange way to tell people that you love them. Um, that's uh, wisdom from uh, a, a dear friend and mentor, Phil, who's uh, who shows up throughout the book as, as my friend and as my priest. And yeah, I, I don't think that we do anyone any service by pretending that life is other than it is mm -hmm. by cleaning it up by um by uh, you know there's so many turns in this process of uh of of losing both my mom and my son where where the the societal encouragement is to make it as clean and as as pretty and <laughs> um as as not death as you can possibly make death. And um, I, I just don't think that is any help at all. I understand why we do it. Um, I, you know, we have over the last, I don't know how many decades, really lost our understanding of, of how to bury the dead, of how mm -hmm. to walk together through that and, and to have it be real. And when we, uh, when our son died and when we buried him, um, I had very, I was so newly a priest. I had very little experience at that point with doing funerals and burials. And so, you know, and we didn't use a, uh, you know, we weren't in a cemetery. There was so much that we just, um, you know, I had this, this really, really wise mentor and friend guiding us to, to help us know how to do this. And, um, so I, I, I'm, I'm in my mind going back and forth between the ashes of Ash Wednesday and the ashes of my son. And, you know, so often the practice in cemeteries, when you work with a funeral home with the, the, like the full package deal is that they take the ashes and they, they put that urn inside of basically a cement block that is sealed shut. Sometimes it's spray painted gold. And the, the hole is surrounded by AstroTurf. And often the, their encouragement, I, I sometimes had to really fight with, uh, with people uh, you know, at the, the cemetery um, when I've been leading this as a priest, they really wanna do the whole thing for you. They don't want, the, they don't want dirt to be visible. They don't want families to see any of it they want to you know often families will will walk away with the the ashes still above ground and then the grave diggers come and put it in and close close it all so you, you don't even have to put your person in the ground and again I, you know i didn't i didn't really know what to do and and phil uh taught me and pouring my son's ashes into this hole that my husband and i had dug was probably the most uh, difficult thing that I will ever do. And 
now, uh, all these years later, I, I regard it as such a gift because it was so real, mm-hmm. because it was true. It was what we were doing. And as painful as it was, like, my God, I am glad that I did that myself. That was, that was my job to do. Yeah. And I'm glad that no one else did that for me um, and that all our community came around us and helped us bury him. everybody just about that was there came and took a fistful of dirt and threw it in. And I think in a, in a ritualized way, that's what we're doing together on Ash Wednesday. Mm-hmm. We're saying we are in these mortal bodies. We don't know what's going to come. We've got hopes, we've got stories, yeah. it's beautiful. And we, we hang our hearts on that, that hope and that trust that there is more and there's life and it is good. And we know that we will die, that our time is limited and we are in that together. And so we mark ourselves physically on our bodies. We mark ourselves with that and it is uh, both in, in receiving that and also in offering it is, I, I think, probably one of the most intimate acts that I engage as, as a priest. I, <laughs> a couple of years ago, when I was still serving at uh, the church in Berkeley, there was a service where there was some mix-up. And usually we, um, we use these little silver dishes or pixes to, that would hold the ash. You'd hold that and stick your thumb in and mm-hmm, put mm-hmm. the ash on somebody's forehead. And somehow um, those were missing. <laughs> I don't know where they were. They didn't get put out. Some uh, are they were, were put somewhere that was not right. And or maybe there was one of them and Phil and I were, were leading the service together. And um, so just sort of on the fly needing to figure it out. Cause it was, you know, the people were, were ready and gathered and it was time to do the imposition of ashes. Um, we, we took the, the little dish, uh, the one little dish and just shook some ash into our cupped palms mm. And this experience of cradling the ash and then one by one putting it on people's foreheads, uh, saying, you're going to die. I love you. Mm-hmm. Um, felt like it, it, it pulled all of what we do and what we're about together in this one tender act. Oh, gosh, that's so powerful. It's giving me chills. <laughs> so not long after Fritz's death, you returned to the pulpit and we're preaching um yeah. and obviously like the role in that you know behind the what is, what is it the podium <laughs> mm-hmm. is to preach good news i mean how could you how did you possibly manage to do that um, <laughs> there was so much obviously bad news yeah um well i i don't know how much i did uh that, that's for someone else to um, well, if I remember to, from, yeah. from what you wrote, I mean, that yeah. sermon sounded pretty amazing. Yeah. Um, so yeah. um, the, the way that I tried to enter into that, uh, and it still feels sometimes really difficult. Um, I have certainly felt that again in preaching during COVID-19. <laughs> um, I felt that even just recently, uh, my son's birthday was... Uh, Oh, a week and change ago, he would have been seven. And preaching on the heels of something like that is, uh, it still calls me up short, even as familiar as it is now. Mm. And 
the way that I have tried to go about it, um, as I've tried to approach it, is by being honest, by um, by trusting that I'm not the only one whose heart has broken. I am not the only one who is struggling to understand what um, what this good news might mean, or what might what it might look like when it still feels like everything is in shambles. I, I don't feel like that anymore. I don't, I, I actually, I, uh, I really love my life um, <laughs> for, for all the, the uh, totally unasked for turns and uh, the, the ways that um, I have felt like life has just wiped me flat. I, you know, it's, it's actually pretty good. And still, what does hope look like? What, what does this good news mean? And the more I live it and the more I wrestle it and the more I, I, I have to also preach it, the more it it seems to me that I just don't have a lot of interest in good news that is only good news for people for you know whose whose lives are humming along well. Yeah. Uh, they, they don't need it. <laughs> it's, it's all good. Or or the the good news may actually feel like much more of a disruption. Uh, and a, a discomforting and a, um, a shaking up for for folks in that situation. Um, and the the great gift of it was that at every turn there there were people and there was creation that were with us, that were accompanying us, that were loving us, that were praying when I could not pray and holding that for me. And that consistent truth, that reality, I do find to be incredibly hopeful. And I I experience that as good news, that we are never left alone, that we are not comfortless. (laughs) There is this advocate who comes to us in the form so often of our community, of our people that are watching out for us and showing up again and again and again when when they don't have to, when it's uncomfortable and messy and awkward and just sad. I mean, <laughs> who really wants to go and hang out with somebody whose babies just died? Like, that's not an appealing situation. And yet people did that for us um, and, and brought that love in. And so um, as best I can, I have tried to um, to share that experience in, in a lot of different forms, both the wrestling and the questioning and, and also my experience that it, it keeps coming. Um, I, I find that to be far more important in my faith, where the hope and the good news is when everything has fallen apart, then what just feels good. Throughout the book, your kids say some pretty funny but like occasionally quite brutal things uh-huh. uh, yeah raising very pointed often stark questions and observations um at one point your son sam asks am i alive mm-hmm. uh, you know stuff like that and it just struck me that a child's eye can see things that are uniquely i guess simple but also like true i don't know i was just wondering like have your kids taught you anything particularly as, as a parent? Have you been surprised by, by your kids? Oh, absolutely. And so, so they're older now. They are, um, my daughter's nine and my son's almost six. And, um, and so it's, it, it's always changing. What I think was such a gift from both of them in especially the early years, in particular after Fritz's death, but also um, I, I've shared now 
very clearly with them how my mom died, that it was suicide, that it was addiction, um, trying to make that be something we can talk about. And a little bit less so now as they as they get older, um, but especially when they were young, when they were two and three and four and there, they had not learned any conventions, <laughs> any social rules about what you can ask and what you can say and what you shouldn't. And it was so hard sometimes. You know, both of them wanted to hear the story of how Fritz died just a million times. And honestly, there were plenty of times when I really didn't want to tell it. I was exhausted and it was sad and, and heartbreaking for me in a way that it was it was different for them. Um, as they have gotten older, I think that they register that uh, that loss in a different way. They, they understand more of how he ought to be here and isn't. But I think that their uh, their relentless curiosity, and their just their continual desire to understand that story forced me. It wasn't an invitation. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, I mean, maybe I could have shut it down, but uh, really didn't want to. Um, they they taught me how to tell the story, how to engage the story. Uh, you know, we we learn stories by telling them again and again, not just by thinking about mm -hmm. them on our own. And so I I think. I, I hadn't really made this connection but um, before now, but I think to a large degree, they they taught me how to be able to say these things, how to how to be able to tell the story in really frank terms, right? When you're when you're talking to a two year old or a four year old, you've got to be pretty direct, uh, or they won't actually take anything away from it. I, I think they taught me how to how to be able to write this book, how to be able to preach these sermons that are just real and where I am by asking that of me again and again and again. And I'm grateful for that. You you write quite often about visions um, mm -hmm. and you do it in your classic, like sort of straightforward way. Of, like, <laughs> you know, this is what's happened and uh, uh -huh. almost without really even noting that there's anything strange about it. And, um, <laughs> uh -huh. I just find that very cool and fascinating. And I wondered like if you would share a little more about that and what, what that's like. Um, was that particular to the time period of this book or um, is that something that just happens? <laughs> <laughs> I think that um, they really began in, in this time, um, in, in this time of grief and mystery and just not having really any idea where I was or what would be or where I was going. Um, I think, I think that the experience of my son dying just cracked me so wide open. I, I mean, I just, I, I mean, it, it sounds silly to me saying it, but I just, I'd never really considered that possibility. And so suddenly they, they would, you know, my child would die. I mean, and so suddenly Everything that I expected and, and could count on was just cracked wide open. And I think something about that experience made me more open to, to everything, to paying attention and to listening and seeing in a way that when we're really used to things being what we expect them to be, I think it can be challenging to see what else is there. And I will say that... Um, it, 
<laughs> that kind of uh, spiritual experience is not something that we talked about very much or, you know, that, that was not engaged in my progressive Episcopal seminary education. Yeah. I mean, we talk about, uh, you know, mystics from many centuries ago, but not as, as a way of engaging with the holy now. Um, and it actually, it took me a, a lot of time, uh, a lot of work with my spiritual director to get to a place where I felt like there, there is something real and something true here. And also I, I can share this more, more widely um, because it's not something that we talk about, uh, at least not in the, the circles that I generally yeah. spend time in. Um, what I've found that has been just wonderful and so fascinating is, maybe not surprising, but um, in sharing them, I then suddenly receive other people's stories of these. Yeah. And, and I think actually a lot of people experience uh, surprising thin places or visions or hear truth in unconventional, however you want to talk about this kind of thing, encounters with the holy and just don't talk about it because they don't want to sound like they're off the rocker. <laughs> yeah, like that's pretty weird. How do you know? Well, I don't know how I know. Just like there it was. Um, and so it's been a, a, a freeing choice. I, I definitely still feels vulnerable to put that out in the world, but um, but I'm grateful for the space that, that seems to be opening up uh, in conversation. That was Liz Titchener, author of The Night Lake. Now, here's Sam Bush. A musician, Sam was the longtime music minister at Christ Episcopal Church in Charlottesville before he moved on to Divinity School at Duke. For this issue of the magazine, he contributed an essay about jazz entitled The Sound of Surprise. You can find more of Sam's writing on the Mockingbird website. Do you have any favorite surprises in your life or memorable ones that you want to share? Yes, actually. The answer that comes to mind is not, um, it's not that interesting, but it's, it's this like very everyday situation, but that is, is rooted in the idea of surprise, especially along mockingbird lines, because I think generally speaking, I'm a pessimistic person and there's, there's sort of this constant fear of like, uh, my life is going to fall apart at any second and, or like, I'm going to be found out for who I really am or something like that. And so like, on one sense, I'm sort of surprised at the end of every day that like, oh, things are actually still okay. And like hmm. certain things fell apart, but God is <laughs> faithful and real. Um, but the thing, the one funny surprise story that comes to mind is um, I run a, or I used to run a music venue um, called the garage that, mm -hmm. that our church, um, owns. And we had this video project where we would, we would film bands around Charlottesville, um, and do just sort of live videos of them playing their songs. And, and it was cool and it was fun. And, um, we shot one band in the Christchurch office, this sort of beautiful old room with lovely furniture. And one of the, um, the cameraman and the producer, really talented guy and super likable and um, heavy set. 
he stood and he, he was doing sort of all, all these things to like get a really good angle. And he stood on um, a couch on a nice antique couch and he broke it. And it mm. was like the spine. I don't, I don't know couches, but like this, the spine or whatever, like the the main part of the couch snapped <laughs> and and so i i felt like when that happened it was like okay this is sort of like a, a marginal ministry anyway like i'm not really sure um what sort of fruit is coming from this project <laughs> I, it's probably going to get sacked and i remember the next morning i went to our rector his name's paul walker and I told him and it was just like, I was just sort of expecting like either, um, yeah, uh, let's probably just like lay that project to rest. Um, but so I went to him tail between my legs and said, you know, we, we broke one of, one of the really nice couches and his response, I'll never forget. It was four words. He just looks at me without hesitating. And he just says, um, big whoop who cares? <laughs> and the, what surprised me about it was, was, um, I mean, not even really that it was gracious or forgiving, but it was like the tone. Yeah. It, it what like, you can sort of like play grace as sort of like this scripted, um, formula, um, mm -hmm. of like mm -hmm. the Christian response to when things don't go well. And it can often come across as like, condescending and um you know like he could have said like well sam you know that was that's too bad um yeah totally. and there are consequences but um i forgive you and it's okay but instead like he he extended grace and he actually meant it <laughs> so mm -hmm. yeah. i feel like that's like wow you actually mean this like uh mm -hmm. it's really not a big deal it's not yeah. this sort of like um this postured uh, Christian response. It's like something that's from the heart. So anyway, yeah. it's funny that you ask that because that's the thing that for some reason immediately comes to mind, this, this, this surprising response to having messed up. Totally. That is such a good story. I'm so glad that you shared that. And, <laughs> well, let's talk about this essay. Uh, you've written this fantastic piece for the surprise issue. It's about jazz and grace and faith and surprise, obviously. Um, but we can just begin uh, broad. And I wanted to ask like about the title, uh, The Sound of Surprise. Why is jazz the sound of surprise? Um, that's a term that I, I stole um, from, his name's Whitney Ballier. Uh, I think that's how you pronounce it. But he, he was... He was a jazz critic for the New Yorker for almost 50 years. And he coined that phrase that jazz is the sound of surprise. I haven't read any of his stuff, but um, as soon as I saw that, it clicked. It was mm -hmm, like, mm -hmm. I, I, and, and I mean, just to start off, I don't even know that much about jazz. I took a history of jazz class in college and that was so long ago that the main takeaway for me is that the professor was really cool. And mm -hmm. he loved jazz and like, he loved it more than he loves his family. And, and there was <laughs> something that was like very, um, his enthusiasm about it was, was what was contagious. Like, that's my main takeaway is that like, this guy loved jazz so much, I should probably give it a shot. And, mm -hmm. um, and it was really fun and cool, but I, I don't know that much. I kind of felt like a hack writing this 
essay and Ken Wilson, one of our editors really came to my rescue as far as like articulating more about like what it is. And then um, I'm also taking this class at Duke Divinity School um, called Theology and Music. And the professor, Jeremy Begbie, um, knows a lot about what we're talking about. Um, and so, yeah, the, the, the title, The Sound of Surprise, comes from Whitney Valier, and then the subtitle Jazz and a Theology of Ordered Openness uh, really comes from Begbie, um, mm -hmm. where he's talking about how like jazz, it's funny, like I think most people's impression of what jazz is or what I used to think jazz was, was just kind of winging it. And it's all about the vibe and the feel, and you just got to get in the groove and all these words that like um, are emotive, but no one really knows what they mean. And is it just kind of like playing a bunch of random notes? And as long as you're in the groove, it's going to sound good. Um, I feel like that is what most people think jazz is and um this comedian john benjamin he came out with this album maybe five years ago and um it's he doesn't know how to play piano but he took he hired a bunch of jazz players like a drummer a bass player uh and a saxophonist and um they were like studio musicians and really good and and the, his album is just them playing like sort of like running these changes and, the, and this chord progression and him just playing nonsensical piano over it. And so it's, it's like his experimental jazz album, um, but he sounds terrible and he knows it. Like the title track is like, well, I should have dot, 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 learned how to play piano. Um, and so like, amazing. well, that's what I thought jazz was, is mm -hmm. just sort of mm -hmm. winging it. And as long as you like uh, just are vibing with everybody else, it'll sound good. Mm -hmm. Apparently that's just not true because John mm -hmm. Benjamin sounds terrible and it's hilarious. Yeah, the um, term you use is, it's ordered openness right like yes. there is a sense there is a sense of order within within the, the openness yes totally and so like you need order it's not just freedom and um there's like there maybe there's freedom in uh th this because there's a sense of order which kind of takes the pressure off uh, for you to have to come up with something out of thin air. Mm -hmm. um, so like what I've learned about jazz is that there's structure and like you compose the music and um, you, like hopefully, I mean, whoever you're listening to are like knows what they're doing. Um, and then on top of that foundation of order, you get to have fun and you get to improvise. And so like, that kind of the adventurous spirit is built on top of something that um, has structure. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and I didn't, I didn't realize that before mm -hmm. that jazz um, is a mix of ordered openness. I just mm -hmm. thought that was cool. And, and it totally um, translates to life mm -hmm. uh, and, and Christian 
theology. Yeah, you present it in this essay as this kind of analog, actually, for the Christian life. Um, I wondered if you could explain that, like how where Christianity and jazz are similar in that in that sense. Yeah, um, it's uh, there are a lot of correlations. One great jazz quote, Charlie Parker, who's one of the most famous jazz saxophonists, he, he was talking to a group of aspiring musicians and he said, he told them, listen, you've got to learn your instrument. Then you practice, practice, practice. And then when you finally get up there on the bandstand, forget all that and just wail, <laughs> which is great. Yeah. And so, so like, awesome. That translates, I think, to what we read in the Bible and um, just sort of like the experience of Christianity. It's funny, like I'm in seminary right now, and so we're, we're learning all this church history. And what comes to mind when I hear that Charlie Parker quote is like the Nicene Creed hmm. uh, or, or something that um, it like goes to the, the root of Christian doctrine and it's pretty set, like it's very focused on Jesus and his life and death and resurrection. Um, but there's also like, there's a lot of room. There's not, there's not a lot of like detailed instruction as to like how you're going to live your life, but it's mm -hmm. like the foundation that you didn't invent that you just get to sort of take and kind of like play off of. Um, so th what else? The other thing that came to mind is um, this GK Chesterton quote i don't know where it's from but he's tipping his hat to the church and the the cloud of witnesses that have gone before us like this everyone who put so much work into like new testament translation scribes the scholars and he says uh he says if some small mistake were made in doctrine huge blunders might be made in human happiness a sentence mm -hmm. phrased wrong about the nature of symbolism might have broken all the best statues in Europe. Hmm. A slip in the definitions might stop all the dances, might wither all the Christmas trees or break all the Easter eggs. He says, doctrines had to be defined within strict limits, even in order that man might enjoy general human liberties. And this is the best line. He says, the church had to be careful, if only that the world might be careless. Hmm. So I think that that um, carries over from what Charlie Parker was saying, because like mm -hmm. for centuries, you know, these people debated every bit of doctrine in order to protect us from from the heresies that tempt us away from grace um, mm -hmm. and uh, salvation by faith alone. And so, like so doctrine, like easily a humdrum, fairly isolating word is actually like Chesterton understands it to be something that can affect one's well-being. Like it can affect your happiness and your relationships. And like, if you've been forgiven, mm -hmm. um, you're naturally prone to forgive others. And, but like, because doctrine was sort of established, it's not just this rote recitation, but it's like a source of life and hope and relief. And like this, the Nicene Creed or the Apostles' Creed is like, the foundation, right? Like, right. It sort of like, grounds you a little bit so that you can, you can experience grace. Uh, totally. It's, it, it's like Christ has, has um, made the sure foundation as the hymn says. And like, because there's that, and you didn't come up with that, you just sort of get to receive it. 
Um, because of that, then the spirit can breathe life into that foundation in unexpected ways. So like mm-hmm. there's order and then there's total openness as far as like uh, Christian life isn't ordered by directives or instruction, but, but just trusting in God. Yeah. I feel like in your essay, these various like threads come together and you're writing about John Coltrane. I wondered if you could talk a little bit about him and maybe, um, do you have the liner notes, uh, in front of you? Yeah. So the liner notes, I remember, it's funny that uh, this kind of ties back in with your icebreaker question about surprise. Cause, mm-hmm. um, Paul Walker, the rector of Christ church actually gave me this album maybe four years ago. Um, John mm-hmm. Coltrane's a love Supreme. And I, didn't remember it from my college history of jazz class and didn't really know much about it at all. And I put it on and it's cool. And then I read the liner notes and they like blow me away (laughs) because Mm -hmm. it's not this sort of like, uh, there's not a lot of open to interpretation stuff in there. It's like very explicit. He says this right off the bat. He says, dear listener, all praise be to God to whom all praises due. <laughs> like right off the bat. That's awesome. And then, he, and, and then he says, let us pursue him in the righteous path. Yes, it is true. Seek and ye shall find. Only through him can we know the most wondrous bequeathal. And then he says this. He says, during the year 1957, I experienced by the grace of God, a spiritual awakening, which was led me to a richer, fuller, more productive life. At that time, in gratitude, I humbly asked to be given the means and privilege to make others happy through music. I feel this has been granted through his grace. All praise to God. Mm, yeah, I love, isn't that like written in all caps? <laughs> yeah, it's all caps. Like he really means it. This is like his his heart and soul mm-hmm. on the page. And it's like, you can't really, you can't really like dumb that down and say like, oh yeah, I guess he believed in God. He's It's like front and center in your mm-hmm. face. Like mm-hmm. he experienced God and he wants you to know about it. Mm-hmm. But it's not like the way that you tell it, it's not sort of like a, it's not a Hollywood transformation and where like he just kind of has this marvelous experience and then has good behavior for the rest of his life and is an excellent musician. Right. It's kind of like, it's kind of that sense of, of ordered openness really where like, it's kind of messy. Yes, totally. I mean, it's, it, it like feels like it's heading in that direction. Like he, he had an addiction to heroin and alcohol and he was just sort of coming off the rails. And there's this story, I don't, we don't know if it's true, that Miles Davis uh, punched him after a show and kicked him out of the band. He was kicked out of the Miles Davis Quartet. Um, but uh, he just, he wasn't reliable and increasingly erratic. And so um, it looked like his life was just headed towards the gutter. And then something happens, um, this experience, and it feels like, maybe everything's going to get torn like it's going to turn around. Um, and it does like he becomes extremely prolific and like has this driving force to create and is just feeling energized. And, um, but then apparently I, I don't know the facts, but, um, he says later on in the liner notes that like he fell from the path, um, uh, and then it says, but thankfully now through the merciful hand of God, I do perceive 
and have been fully reinformed of his omnipotence. Hmm. It is truly a love supreme. And so like, yeah, it sounds like maybe he started drinking again or something. I don't know. Um, where like, you, you know, if, if the fruits of your labor don't continue, you sort of, you sort of start to, to doubt the source of that fruit. Mm -hmm. Um, except that he, he knew that this foundation he was playing off was firm. Like mm -hmm. it was, it was in place and it wasn't going anywhere. Um, which I think continued to give him hope. Um, which is, I, that's my story. I think that's pretty yeah. much everybody's story. Yeah, um, definitely. you have this experience with God, but you're still you and you're still this sort of, you're a new creation. Um, and your identity is no longer, uh, in what you do, but in what Jesus has done. But, um, still, you you have the same quirks and you know just ask your spouse like <laughs> you're still sort of annoying but um but god is like he's the firm foundation mm -hmm.